All right, so let's, let's start with prayer because we need it today as always, but especially feel the need today. So Lord, I just lift this uh, topic up to you. We're talking about something that a lot of Christians debate over and disagree over, some very passionately, and I pray, Lord, that we can do a good job of laying out the issues without um, causing any rancor, without feeling um, superior or causing people to feel belittled in any way. And I just pray that... Um, that this material can bring people closer to you and not further from one another. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So, um, before we get into the topic, I just want to mention briefly that I have finished marking all of your homework. Yay! Yay. Um, so we have stickers? You have no stickers, but you all deserve them. You all deserve gold stars. You did excellently. Um, I don't know what to do with this. Do you want to pass them out? So I unstapled them, so be careful, uh, they, they should be in order. Uh, the only, I only have one little comment is uh, in your support, there's a support section for proving your point. Um, a few of you just wrote Bible, uh, and I would just encourage you to write actual Bible references. Uh, I hope that, you know, the Bible supports you, but, you know, that's not very going to be helpful for you in the future to just look back and say Bible. Yeah, Bible passages would be great, yeah. you know, if you're discussing these issues. That was the one thing I wasn't using, because I thought, oh, well, the whole point... Well, it depends on the, it depends on the subject, for sure. Uh, if you're talking about, you know, the age of the earth or the moral argument, then, then the Bible is going to be an issue. Um, also, uh, you guys are all doing above and beyond what you're supposed to do which is what I was expecting. I was hoping that you guys would dig in and for your own personal benefit, really um, find answers to these questions. So I think maybe only one time I read one and I was like, perfect, pass. You know, almost all the other times it was like, wow, this is great. This is way more than I was expecting. So don't feel like, um, like you're not doing enough. You're doing enough. It's, it's great. You're doing a great job. Um, it's a pass-fail. If you hand it in, it, it's a pass. We're not grading it. Uh, it's just you have to finish a certain amount. So um, that's not an excuse to hand in garbage, but it's just, <laughs> which I don't think anybody is, is going to do. So anyways, poor choice of words. Um, let's dive into this material before I stick my foot in my house anymore. Um, so we're talking about creationism, specifically how long ago was the, or how, yeah, how long ago was the earth created? And this is an issue, I need to tell you, that has, has cost me more than any of the issues so far. I usually start off by saying, this is the most important issue in the world, and, and usually it, you know, it feels like it at the time. Uh, this is also a very important issue. This is an issue that um, I bumped all the way till here. It belonged at the beginning of the class because we're talking about origins. And I honestly felt like we as a class needed to grow and bond together before we could look at this. I also wanted to kind of feel out where some of you are on this issue, um, and I need to build up the courage <laughs> to get to it, um, because I was raised very much, you know, young earth creationist, and um, went to, you know, my, my home, my church, young earth creationist, went to a Bible college, the only Bible college I'm aware of in Canada that has young earth creationism in its doctrinal statement, um, and that's where I did my Bible college. Seminary was, was you know, had different options, but I, I'm... This is my box, and this is where I want to stay, because the other things, you know, the inerrancy of scriptures, the, the, the very simple and, and straightforward reading of the Bible, you know, this is usually the young earth creationist camp. This is where I want to call my home, and so I don't want to, 
I feel I have this fear. I don't give enough people enough credit, I think, sometimes, because I've come out on a number of other issues where I don't agree with, with mainstream, like, you know, pacifism and things like this, and I'm like, oh, no, everybody's going to hate me, and people are like, okay, cool. You, you don't agree with us, that's fine. And so I've been blown away by people's charitable spirits in the past, and I hope that I am today as well. Um, on this issue, there are a wide variety of options, and I've narrowed them down to, basically, we can say either they're the earth is young, created 6,000 years ago in six days, or it's old. Uh, if you have your chart here, um, the other way we can divide it is by saying either evolution is true or not. And then all the way on the right, no, wow, I'm teaching, my brain is completely fried. Um, oh yeah, all the way on the right is liberalism, which is kind of backwards from how it should be, it should be on the left, but whatever. Um, <laughs> We have the liberal perspective, and that's just there as a counterbalance to, to show us um, uh, wh where that lands. So my, I'm going to get to the chart soon. Um, just to help you organize yourselves, you're going to be following two different things today, so it's going to be a little bit confusing. Uh, to organize myself, I created this chart, and this chart is going to be something that you're going to save and you're going to use and you're going to find it very helpful. Um, my notes for today also will be following, and this is going to be the, the order of the lecture, Okay. But we're going to be jumping back and forth. You might just want to take this, this chart out and have it available and accessible so you can flip through it because we're going to be jumping back and forth to various points. So my big crazy thesis uh, for today is that you can be a Christian and not believe in a young earth. So already, you know, that, that is kind of a bold statement. But the reason I'm saying it is there are legitimate options that people have held for thousands of years in some case, um, holding that the earth is old. As well, you can be a good scientist and believe in a young earth. So that's another bold statement. People often throw the word pseudoscience at young earth creationists. It's not true. You can believe in a young earth and be a good scientist. You can believe in an old earth and, be, and, and hold on to the Bible, be a, a conservative uh, biblical person. Um, these are valid perspectives. Even Ken Ham agrees with me to some extent. He says, we're not saying that if you believe in evolution, you can't be a Christian. Not at all. Because the Bible says that by grace you are saved. You don't save yourself. It is by confessing the Lord Jesus and that he rose from the dead that you are saved. Ken Ham. So Ken Ham obviously is, is the, probably the, the foremost leader in the Young Earth Creationist Camp. Uh, Creation.org. And he very rightly points out, look, you can be a Christian and believe in evolution. And I think this is legitimate. It's, it's essential to say, because we need to make a division between what's essential and what's non-essential. And you can believe in evolution and still get saved. Now, he would go on to say, if you believe in evolution, you know, here's the theological problems. And we're going to look at those theological problems, because um, if you just tag on evolution to the, your whole bigger system, this is all in introductory remarks here, if you're wondering where, where we're going here, if you just tag on evolution without reflecting on it, that can start to cause problems in your larger theological system. And so we're going to try and, and, and help show you guys um, how people tag evolution or an old earth onto their bigger theological system and, and remain evangelical Christians. And I think that this is an incredibly important discussion, and I think that um, young earth creationists should thank me. <laughs> um, I mentioned Ken Ham, Kent Hovind. I watched a few debates with him. 
um, didn't have the same sort of attitude. Uh, in a debate with Hugh Ross, we're going to mention a bunch of Hugh Ross's material, called him a heretic about seven times in the course of this debate, said at one point, I feel like I'm talking to a Mormon priest. He said that twice, actually. Uh, you say one thing, but you mean something else, and I'm honestly not sure you're saved. Um, I don't think that's a good attitude, and here's my reasons why. It's not just because I don't, you know, I don't like it. It's because um, having, I think that it's really helpful to have um, a variety of opinions that we can offer people. So, for example, um, I believe in biblical inerrancy. As, as defined with a few caveats by the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy. So it's a fairly conservative, well, it's, it's kind of the benchmark of conservative evangelical uh, interpretive inerrancy. Um, below that, I would put Bart, that the word of God becomes the word of God as we read it. Below that, liberalism, which I'll define in just a second. And below that, you know, radical atheism that thinks the Bible is just this crazy pile of of ancient myths, right? So in my, in my podcast on inerrancy, I talked about this is what I believe. But here's another option. And below that, there's even another option. Well, I could have put that it's historically reliable documents is somewhere in between liberalism and, and uh, atheism. So if you're studying the Bible and you get to an issue where you really can't get past something and something is really causing you pause in your faith, you don't have to fall all the way, ah, down to you know crazy atheism there's options in between here so maybe for a while you're like you know what i don't know what to do with how many times the roosters crowed or or jonah or whatever jonah in the belly of the whale a few issues we had on facebook this morning so maybe you want to say and maybe this will be a temporary thing or or whatever maybe you'll say well the the bible becomes the word of god i i don't believe in barthianism i don't think this is a good way to go but it's better than going all the way to atheism right and so because we're talking about people's souls here, we're talking about salvation, I think that it's perfectly legitimate to say, look, I'm a young earth creationist. Um, I don't agree with old earth creationism or theistic evolution, but I'm glad they're there so that if my kids say, you know, I can't hold on to your young earth creationism, they have other options and they're not just going to fall out of the church. There's, hey, option B, option C. As well, when we're sharing our faith, um, I do the same sort of thing. I had a conversation with a lady a few years back, uh, I'm sorry, last year, and she uh, was from uh, Brazil, I believe, and uh, kind of a lapsed Catholic, and she had, she understood the Christian faith, she just didn't find it very appealing. And one of, and you know, some people are like that, they understand it, it's not an explanation, they just find it repugnant. And one of her issues was, look, I'm a, I'm a feminist, I believe in women's rights, and, and what about gender roles? Now, if you scratch me, I will bleed complementarianism, which is there, there are gender roles, there are, you know, male and female, and God has called men to, you know, stand up and wear, the, you know, not wear the pants, it's a bad expression, but take responsibility. But, well, the conversation was cut, but what I would say if I had another chance to talk to her is, look, there is room in the church for feminists. There is room for egalitarians. There, you don't have to agree with me on this issue to, you know, be saved of your sins. And so in evangelism and in sharing the faith to the next generation, I think it's so helpful to have other options. And so I'd encourage you to just to pay attention. Don't, I don't think, I don't feel, I don't sense resistance, but, you know, don't just be sitting there thinking, well, I'm, this theory is evil and it's from the devil. I'm just going to punch holes in it, you know. 
understand it so that if somebody says, look, I really can't be a Christian because I can't believe that the earth was created 6,000 years ago, you can say, well, look, I don't agree with this, but there's something called old earth creationism or theistic evolution, and here you go. And this, for you, can be a way to be a, a Christian and feel like you don't have to throw your, your brain in the waste bucket on the way in the church. Okay, um, so that is my introductory statement. Um, second, the second thing I want to say, and now we're into the notes, things that we agree. Chart, uh, points 1 to 10. There's a huge amount of, inf- of stuff that we agree on in the church, and there's a few things that we even agree with liberalism on. Uh, we believe that God created the universe at the beginning of time. We re- agree uh, that recorded human history began around 4,000 BC. It's really fascinating that actually before 6,000 years ago, there isn't a lot for human history. It's, it's just guess and presupposition because that's when writing was invented. So there isn't, um, the Bible doesn't create a, a huge conflict in that sense. I need these papers. Um, you can grab them over there. Yeah. That's okay. I'm just a little bit defensive, I guess. <laughs> Don't touch. <laughs> Um, oh, no, this is what I'm reading off of. Yeah. Okay, so we're all Christians agree, evangelical Christians. The Bible is inspired, inerrant word of God. The Bible is the moral authority of our lives. Uh, the Bible is a supernatural book, point five, written by the author of the universe. The Bible contains sci- scientific information about the natural world. God speaks to us through nature and through the Bible. Uh, theolo- theological ideas evolve or get better or reform over time. We'll talk about that in a, later on. Um, but our ideas certainly have changed since the Middle Ages, since you know, the early church, and, and po- in a positive sense. We, we change as we get new information. Uh, we no longer believe in a flat earth, for example. The Bible records, or you know, we, our, our views on, on race and slavery have also changed, and on, on women and gender issues. And, and this is a good thing. We change, we reform, we're reformed and reforming. Uh, the Bible tells real history about miracles that actually happened. Uh, Jesus is the only way of God, way to God, and the most important mission on, on earth is to make disciples of all nations and to save souls from hell, uh, to live with God eternally. So this is where evangelicals, you know, we all agree. So skip down here for a second to point 11. Where we disagree, and here's, we're just going to define the positions here so you understand where the positions are. Young earth creationism, as we all know, point 11 um, God created the earth, or the, the whole universe, in six 24-hour literal days, somewhere between six and up to 10,000 years ago. So it's more common to say between six and 8,000 years ago, but some will push it all the way to 10,000 years ago. Um, the old earth creationist would say the universe is billions of years old, but God used special creation to create all biological life. So evolution does not exist in the old earth creationist model. Macroevolution, of course. Um, God used, so uh, theistic evolution says God used evolution to create plant and animal life. And I've divided this, there's theistic evolution and then there's evolutionary creationism, which is a difference without a distinction without a difference. It's the same thing as far as I'm concerned. Um, But there is a difference within this camp that is very significant and there isn't a name to define it. So I've just called it uh, theistic evolution one and theistic evolution two. So some people say God used creation, God used evolution to create plant and animal life, but he specially created Adam and Eve. So Adam and Eve are a special creation, even though everything else evolved. So that's what I'm calling theistic evolution one or TE one. Um, and others will say, no, God used evolution for everything. Okay. So this is a highly significant theological point. It might not seem very significant, you know, scientifically or whatever, but when it gets to the theological part, it's, it's highly significant. 
So are there questions about the divisions between these three perspectives, three and a half perspectives? So you're saying that everything but man was evolved, but man was created... Uh, Out of dust or, okay. you know, specially created. Does that young earth creation see it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Are there other questions? Just, just comprehension questions of, of this section so far. Okay, so with all my, my um, kind and, and inclusive words, I don't want to, to give the impression that there isn't something called liberalism out there that is a danger, that is a theological danger. Um, when we talk about liberalism, of course, it's, it's one of these words like heretic or like cult that just gets batted around, and it can be just used pejoratively, and that's not the sense that I'm, I'm meaning to use it. Uh, remember in our, one of our early courses, we talked about modernity, we talked about pre-modern, which is where I would be, where, where most evangelicals would be, and then modern. And the early days, the liberal controversy was just called the modernist controversy and eventually became liberalism, and then li liberalism became a bad word, and now we don't know what to call it. Um, but there is a perspective out there that, okay, God created everything, there is a God, but he doesn't, miracles don't happen, okay? In the created world, after God created it, he doesn't interfere anymore. So Jesus is not the son of God. The Bible is not miraculously inspired. All the miracles recorded in the Bible didn't actually happen. And in fact, it, we have, it comes up in our notes a number of times, but I'll just go off the top of my head because it's faster. The Old Testament was basically written around the time of the Babylonian captivity by various warring factions, not warring literally, but competing factions within the Jewish community that were trying to create a religious identity for themselves and so that's where you hear the JEPD theory, uh, the, which I don't want to get into. But um, basically, the Old Testament is just a fiction created by humans to you know, create unity and love and joy and peace and all that. Um, so this is a very different understanding, obviously, of the Bible than, than evangelicals have. And what is really frustrating, I'm going to stick with that word, it is frustrating that there are people that say, I'm an evangelical Christian, but really they hold these views. They don't think the Bible is the word of God. They don't think that Jesus is you know, the son of God. They don't believe that miracles actually happen. They reinterpret the whole Christian faith according to this you know, different way of looking at things. And they want to come in and be our seminary professors and, and take over our churches and teach this to our kids. And this is really frustrating. And what's also frustrating is this is, I'm talking about you know, old school liberalism as it was defined, developed in 19th century Germany. These thoughts have evolved and changed. And now these thoughts come in and people are kind of halfway in between. And they'll have some liberal ideas and some conservative ideas. And this is where it gets really hard to weed out, okay, what do you actually believe? Especially when um, when people use all the you know, conservative words, but they're redefining what they mean by these words. So liberalism is out there, and uh, we're going to talk more about this in the next, uh, probably the next class, we'll talk more about that. J. Gresham Machen, J. Gresham Machen is somebody that wrote the book Christianity and Liberalism. If you just look, Christianity and liberalism. If you just look for that online, you'll find it. It's a great book. It changed. I would put it along with C.S. Lewis as one of the most important books in my life because I was in seminary trying to figure out what in the world is going on with this liberalism business. Um, and I read Christianity and liberalism and it was like, oh, 
So his, his, in his introduction, he says, the tree of liberalism and of Christianity, he says liberalism is a different religion. Mm-hmm. And he says the, the, um, the, the branches interlock, but at the root, one believes in miracles, the other does not. And that is the difference between the two religions. And of course, there's, there's people that are halfway in between, and, and we want to be very careful about calling people liberals. The, J. Gresham Machen. Spelled funny. Actually, I think this is an S. Gresham. This is a C. Sorry. All right. So the point of saying all that, and we will get to that more because next week we're going to talk about the Old Testament and critiques that people have on that. And the week after that, we'll talk about um, the Bible's authority and the proof, you know, historically speaking, for the Bible. Um. Old Earth creationists and theistic evolutionists are not liberals. They might look like it. They might smell like it, but they're not liberals um, because they believe in miracles. Okay, and this is the fundamental difference between evangelicals and you know liberals. Um, and so, I, I want to tell you what liberalism is briefly, so that you know that this is an in-house debate. Okay, moving on in our notes from that subject. So let's talk about a young earth creationist perspective. Obviously, um, this, is, this is a subject that really made me feel inadequate because there is so much written on each one of these perspectives. Again, I grew up in a young earth creationist uh, um, belief and I wrote num- numerous papers in, in, in college on it. So I'm going off of the knowledge I have. There might be other <coughs> ideas out there that I'm not aware of. Um, but just in a nutshell, so um, the most important name, I didn't put it on your notes for some reason, in this whole debate is obviously Charles Darwin. Before Charles Darwin, we did not have this debate. Um, So Charles Darwin comes on the scene in the 1800s, um, and he he publishes The Origin of Species in 1870-something, no, so 1859, and there were basically two responses. Either some Christians said, okay, well, Maybe the earth is old, and maybe we need to reinterpret how we read the Bible. Or else other Christians said, the earth is clearly not old. Let's reinterpret how we look at science. So those are the two basic directions that Christians have taken. So through the years, there have been a lot of different ideas proposed for how we can interpret science to fit within 6,000 years. So the first one is the canopy theory. This was formulated by Isaac Newton Vale in 1874, a Quaker school teacher, um, who saw in Genesis 1-7 and 7-11 that there is water above the expanse. There's water above the sky. So you guys are nodding because you've heard of this. So there's just, there was water up there, and that explains in part where the water came from for the flood. Um, one of the big problems with the flood, as we started studying it scientifically, is there's just not enough water. I mean, if, if all the water of the earth per- precipitated at the same time, we would have like, you know, about an inch or, or three inches maybe max globally. We have a lot more than that one spot because it's concentrated. But if, if it all fell at the same time, we w- just wouldn't have enough water. Um, and so maybe there was a canopy out there. And this also helps to explain um, why people lived so long before the flood. So before the flood, this canopy was, was filtering UV radiation, allowing for long lifespans, perhaps allowing dinosaurs to live longer, thus grow bigger, perhaps increasing the oxygen content of the earth um, because we can see uh, you know, in 
air bubbles of amber, uh, we can scientifically prove that the air concentration had far more oxygen back in the day, whenever that was. So perhaps this canopy um, is responsible for that. The subterranean water stores theory, I don't know who came up with this, but it's a, a part, an important part of the theory is that there was water underneath the earth because it talks about the fountains of the great deep that were opened up and shot out the water. So they've actually discovered that there, are, there is a lot of water further down in the, in the earth. And so perhaps in some way this water came shooting up and contributed water for the flood and then it went back down. Perhaps this is what cut up the continents uh, and, and broke up Pangaea, the, the supercontinent uh, that was here before. Uh, there may have been near miss of meteors may have been whizzing past the earth and, and caught in orbit and maybe this um, caused a global flood because they were pulling the waters around the earth. Perhaps this broke up the, the water stores. Perhaps this broke um, the canopy. Uh, these are all different theories that are batted around. Um, the Genesis flood. Um, do we have a slide for that? <laughs> I just put that up for fun. So th this is the real reason that... <laughs> For, for those of you that can't see, oh man, this is, this is clipping. I didn't get the memo. <laughs> for those of you that don't know why dinosaurs went extinct, there's a picture here of, uh, uh, of two dinosaurs sitting on a rock looking at the, the ark, and, and they say, oh crap, was that today? So they just missed the boat. Um, so certainly, uh, young earth creationists would say that dinosaurs lived with Adam and Eve in the ark, um, and that... Uh, they would have gone onto the ark, just the baby versions, obviously, of the larger dinosaurs. And um, that this Genesis flood was global in the modern sense of covering the entire globe. It wiped out all land animals except for those spared in the ark. And it caused most of the fossils and sedimentary layers we see today. So this is, um, you know, obviously there's a fossil record, which was also discovered around the end of the 19th century. And so the explanation was, look, this was caused by the flood. Uh, we need lots of water. We need, you know, a big flood condition to cause um, these layers. Um, so, the along with this is the so-called Amphalos argument or the naval argument, uh, published by Philip Henry Goss in 1857. So a lot of this stuff happened like right around Darwin. Um, these ideas coming up, and then they've been, you know, perfected over the years. Um, so Philip Henry Goss. Um, in response to, you know, proof for an old earth, said, look, when Adam was created, did he have a belly button or not? This is actually a really old argument, a really old question. Did Adam have a belly button? Um, and the, the answer is he probably did, because otherwise, I don't know, he would look funny. Um, but the, the point being that God created a full-grown man. He didn't create a little baby. He created a full-grown man. So if God could create Adam full-grown, why couldn't he create the earth full-grown? Why couldn't he create everything with an appearance of age? Um, and this explains probably the, the most important question from contemporary cos cosmology. How did starlight get to us from 14 billion years ago um, if it takes you know, 14 billion light years for the light to get here, how did it get here in 6,000 years? So the Amphalos argument says, look, the Amphalos argument says, look, God created stars out there but the, with starlight radiating towards us so that we see it with an appearance of age. Okay, so that is you know, the basic idea of the, the Genesis um, creationist account 
from uh, you know something that you would see on Creation Today or uh, Creationism.com. Um, are there comprehension-based questions about the Young Earth Creationist model? Have I missed anything important? So let's move on to dangerous territory and a critical evaluation of the theory because we want to propose all these theories and then critically evaluate them. Not to debunk them, not to you know, knock them out, but just to point out where their, their strengths and weaknesses. So the first thing I want to say is that this is a thoroughly modern theory. Um, Calvin and Luther and you know, Augustine weren't thinking there's a canopy out there and meteors passing by a circular you know, globe. And you know, what, these, these are modern concepts, okay? That's not saying they're bad, but sometimes young earth creationists you know, kind of take the moral high ground and say our view hasn't changed since the beginning of time and years has. Well, there is an interaction going on here between the Bible and science, which is good. This is not a bad thing. This is good. Um, I drew a picture for you, uh, and now I, uh, that I put up here. So this is the biblical understanding of revelation. God is up there. We can't know a lot of things about God unless he reveals them to us. And God has created the world. This is um, not special revelation, but general revelation is the world, creation. And God has given us special revelation. God has given us the, the word. So sorry, I should have put the Bible up higher than that. God has given us the Bible. He's given us special revelation. Now, based on the Bible, we have theology. And based on the world, we have science. So the, Bi the Bible does not contradict the world. There's no contradiction between God's general and special revelation. But there can be contradiction between theology and science. Because those are our ideas based on what God did. So when there's contradiction between the Bible and science, or, yeah, the Bible and, no, theology. This should be theology. I messed myself up here. Between theology and science, we go back, we say there must be a problem either with our theology or with our science. And both can be wrong. Both can be flawed, right? And so the, the young earth creationists are, are going to tend to go back to the science and say well, the science, there might, the problem must be with the science. Um, and that's fine. This is a good process, okay? Um, this is how we are a church which is reformed and reforming, is because we always go back to the Bible to re-examine what the Bible actually says. And I drew this chart um, during a discussion after class, but it's good for everybody to see. This is the idea of evolution, okay? Evolution of thoughts is you have a thesis, antithesis, and a synthesis. This is an idea that, came, that was come up with, uh, I believe it's Hegel, um, a German guy. Thesis, antithesis, synthesis. You have an idea. I don't agree with you. We argue, and then we come to some sort of an agreement. And then this synthesis becomes a new thesis, which has an antithesis. And from that, we get a new synthesis, right? And so through this, this is how you know, ideas change, this is how society progresses, and this eventually became the basis of Darwinian evolution, the idea that this happens on a cellular bi biological level. Now, that's fine, but this is an unguided process. We don't know which direction evolution is going to go. It just depends on a lot of chance, a lot of, you know, you could say, well, it's going to progress towards, you know, the better, but what is better? There, there, there's no way of saying how how evolution is going to progress necessarily. And 
chance and um, you know, somebody might just be a really good debater and he might win the argument when he shouldn't have. This is another way of, um, of, of progressing it or progressing is reformation. So whenever we have a conflict, we go back to scriptures and we say, what does scriptures actually say on this issue? And this is what happened at the Reformation in a big way, right? We had a Reformation because we, we went back to the sources. And we say, what does the Bible actually say about indulgences? What does the Bible actually say about penance? What does the Bible actually say about these different things? And based on what the Bible actually said, we reinterpreted our theology and we progressed and we moved. But it, it's, not, it's not open-ended. It's not just whatever. We're always going back to the Bible. We're always progressing in, our, in the sense of getting a, a deeper grasp of what scriptures actually say. And this works, I'll get to you in a second. You know this is working well when you have better science and better theology. This is my belief, is that you'll have better science and better theology when Reformation happens, right? Because God created the world, God created the Bible. The two are not in inherent uh, opposition. Um, when we have uh, good Reformation, we'll have better theology and better science. Yes, Lisa? Yep. So that progression might take you in a different direction. It, and obviously yep. it has because there's, well, liberalism is another mm-hmm. um, You can't look at something with, and, and separate yourself and who you are from your investigation of yeah. the issue in the Bible. But the Bible is unchanging. That's what makes it not an unguided process. And I, I would say that you know, God oversees, you know, he knows the culture. <laughs> but, but the pressures that are put on the church at various times in history, I think have illuminated us to a deeper understanding of scriptures. I mean, just think about how our, our thoughts have changed on women, on gender issues over the years. And certainly people would still say that we're very backward or that I'm very backward because I'm complementarian. But even though I'm like a stick in the mud, very you know, outdated sort of a guy for being complementarian, my views are very different than something in the early church would have been. So our ideas change because pressure's put on us from the outside. And even the feminist movement, you know, which you know, tends to be all those liberals, those feminists, all those bad people. But putting pressure on the outside has forced us to go back, what does the Bible actually say about gender? You know? And so this pressure, when it's done right, when it's done wrong, it just becomes... Bible, we don't need the Bible anyways. We'll just do whatever culture says. And, and, but that sort of idea quickly becomes non-Christian. And, you know, they left because they were never of us, it says in, in 1 John. Um, but the true Christian Reformation is going back to scriptures, rein, reinterpreting it, so to speak. That's a dangerous term. But seeing it with new eyes and coming to a deeper understanding. And when our understandings of scriptures are better, they last longer. And they become life-giving for the church. Um, so I don't want to spend too much t- more time on this, although this is a really important concept for you guys to grasp. Um, and it is so, yeah. so important because, um, you know, it, 
you know, I just watched a debate on YouTube between Kent Hovind and, and Hugh Ross, and he didn't seem to be making a distinction between his theology and what, Bible said, what the Bible actually said. And he made a statement, kind of a joking thing. Well, it seems like the more you read the Bible, or I just stick with the Bible. I just stick with it. He said that over and over. And then he said, well, you know, the more you read the Bible, the more you become a Baptist. I thought, oh, there's, there's people that are not Baptists that read the Bible and their view of the Bible is not deficient. And there's people that are Baptists that don't agree with you. you know? And this is because we have different, the- I mean, how many types of Baptists are there? I mean, come on, right? Because, because they're not making the distinction between this is, what the, this is the inerrant, unchanging word of God that you know, is clear, communicates to us clearly, but we can't comprehend it completely. And then there's theology that is under that. Okay? And, and our theology, you know, we need to be somewhat humble towards that. Um, I don't want to go all the way towards saying we can't know. I don't want to say we can't know certain things, but there's some things that are, clear, that are more clear and less clear in scriptures. There's some things that are communicated more clearly and less clearly in scriptures. And we need to know which is which. Okay, um, sometimes often, or often as well, um, young earth creationists is called pseudoscience. Um, there are real scientists that are young earth, obviously. Um, and I think with the, with the Anfellos argument, you, you can use that to pretty much be a scientist in no matter what field, because no matter what evidence is brought to you, you say, well, God created with the appearance of age. And if you want to go further with that, you can say, well, I can study cosmology and the Big Bang because this is the appearance of age that God put into the universe. So that helps you do, you know, it, it, it alleviates the, con- the conflict. Um, at the same time, I've heard a lot of people say, well, that's a non-falsifiable position. You can't prove or disprove something this argument, and therefore, you know, some people will find that, um, again, as I said before, it's not, it's maybe repugnant. I understand it, it's logically coherent, I just don't like it. And some people will just say, I just don't like it because it's not, it's not, it's not uh, falsifiable. Um, But anyways, uh, let's move on to the next position with that uh, clumsy segue here. Okay, so let's talk about the old earth position. So why in the world would people believe that the, there is an old earth? I mean, come on, isn't it clear from scriptures that God created the earth in, in six literal days? So believe it or not, there are a lot of people throughout church history that have believed in an old earth. Um, I'm not even going to read these. There's a bunch of church fathers that held to an old earth, that read Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 and other Old Testament passages and said God created it in a long span of time. Um, that's not to say that they held you know, to evolution or whatever. It's just that it's not necessarily clear that if you read Genesis 1 and 2, the only c- conclusion you can come to is that it was created in six literal days. Uh, so let's talk about some of the warrant for um, why people could read the same Bible that, that you know, Ken Hovind and, and Ken Ham are reading and get to millions of years or long periods of time. Um, first of all, and I just see our time going, so I'm just going to fly over these, but there's days before the sun. The sun is created on day four, and it said it's created to mark the days and the seasons. Well, how were the days marked before the sun was created? Obviously, you know, the young earth creationists have answers for this, but this is just something that historically has kind of pushed people to say, well, how was it a day before there was a sun? How was there evening and morning without a sun? As well, um... This is divine time, so to speak. There weren't people around before Adam was created. 
So how was time being measured? And in 2 Peter 3, 8, it says a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day to God. That's not to say that God is bad at telling time. It's just to say that God lives outside of time and his, his apprehension of time is different than ours. And I did a long paper on uh, the day of the Lord in seminary. And something that's really fascinating, uh, point number 74 in your chart, you can look at this, but um, what's fascinating is if you take the day of the Lord really strictly literally, you run into huge problems because in the prophets, um, the destruction of Jerusalem is going to happen at the day of the Lord. And then depending on how you interpret things, maybe the fall of Babylon will happen at the day of the Lord. And certainly Jesus will return and it will be the day of the Lord. And then the Holy Spirit will descend and that will be the day of the Lord. The Joel passage about your old men will have dreams and your young men will see visions. That will happen at the day of the Lord. And then Jesus will come again and that will be the day of the Lord. And the whole earth you know, will be judged and it will be the end of time. So depending how you do your Old Testament, your uh, eschatology, either that Jesus returns at the end of the world or those are two different events. But it's at least, at the very least, three different events separated all throughout history is the day singular of the Lord. So it, it kind of highlights the fact that God exists outside of time. And the, the only, I mean, either you say there's an error in scriptures, right? Which we wouldn't say, I wouldn't say. Or else you say, our, my theology has to change a little bit. How I understand the day singular of the Lord um, is, is that God is outside of time. He sees time before him like a string. And it's like hitting it with a rake. For God, it's one act. But we experience it because we're, we're moving through time. We experience the day of the Lord at different points along the timeline. Okay? So that's just another indication that for God, time can be different than us. Uh, as well, the seventh day does not end. I don't know why I didn't put passages in there for that. Uh, but every day has, there, there was evening, there was morning, there was evening, there was morning. The seventh day does not have that. And in Hebrews, it talks about, well, the Jews spent a lot of time talking about this and discussing, you know, the, the Sabbath rest of God, which is why in Hebrews, it talks about how God is continuing in his Sabbath rest. God is still resting. Uh, and so if the seventh day does not have an evening and morning, why? And if the seventh day is not literal, why are the other days liberal? Uh, literal? Okay, then we get into a section that I've just called the Yom Wars, because uh, a huge amount of the debate on this is what is the literal meaning of day the Hebrew, which is in Hebrew called Yom. Um, so this is 65 in your notes, all the way up to 84. Oh. Okay, yeah, 65. So young earth creationists will say, the plain reading of Genesis 1 is six literal days. It says day one, day two, evening, morning, evening, morning. True, but a deeper, deeper reading of scriptures often reveals deeper hidden truths. Yes, but deeper layers of truth do not contradict the first layers of truth. And the response would be, there's no inherent contradiction between a day and a longer period of time. And the younger creation would say, yes, there is. Um, as with English or French, the Hebrew yom can mean a literal day, that's one option, or just the daylight portion of the day, 12 hours, that's another option. Or an undefined period of time. So the Hebrew word yom has this variety. And if you do a whole study of the Old Testament, you can find these three versions. In fact, in Genesis 1, at one point, yom is, refer is used to refer just to the daylight portion of the day. And in Genesis 2, in the day God created the heavens and the earth, it refers back to all of Genesis 1 as one yom. Um, 
and there's a response to that that we'll get to in a second. I'll just uh, mention another thing here. In Genesis 2, okay, it refers to the whole creation week of the day. Um, also, Adam and Eve ate of the tree, but they did not die in the same 24-hour period, despite warnings that they would die on the yom that they ate the fruit. And so there's, there's indications in the text, hey, this is a long period. This could be a long period of time. This is why people have read the same Bible that Ken Ham is reading and thousands of years ago said this is a long period of time, or it could be. Um, and again, I've already mentioned this, but there's no humans around to measure time. Um, so I already mentioned 73 and 74. Um, so 75 is that when Yom is, is combined with the so-called ordinal number, the first day, the second day, the third day, it always means a literal day. So this is the really big argument that young earth creationists will, will hold to. Um, and the old earther will say, there is no rule in Hebrew grammar that says it needs to be so. This is just something they're basically saying. They're saying it based on how it's used in the Old Testament, but the Hebrew language is bigger than the Old Testament. And so just because there isn't an example in the Old Testament, that doesn't actually mean that, that there's no rule that, that it has to be this way. Um, and, and then the young earth creationists will say, yes, there is. Look at this commentary. Look at that commentary. And we'll say, look at these commentaries. And, and I'm like... You guys are over my head. So that's where the debate is to some extent, uh, whether or not the first day must mean 24-hour days. Um, also in Hosea 6.2, the third day refers to a long period of time. It's a prophecy, God, the, the nation of Israel will be without a king, and then the third day God will visit them. So what day is that? It's a period of time, the first day, the second day, the third day. So they will say, well, perhaps that's a literal day. This is a prophecy of Jesus rising again. Yes, that's fine, but... We need, in the historical critical method, we need to first ask what would the first original Jews have understood when they saw third day. They wouldn't have read that and said, oh, Jesus is coming. It would have been a prophecy that they would have understood in their context as referring to a period of time. Um, in Genesis, yeah, in Genesis 2, 11, God makes it clear that he created in six literal days and rests on the seventh, giving us a pattern for a week. And it literally says in the week that God created the earth in six days uh, and rests on the seventh. Actually, I should read. Can somebody read uh, Exodus twenty eleven? Sorry, I don't have my Bible today. Okay, that's fine. Um, so in this passage, it says, you know, God created in one week. In, Den in Daniel 9.24, a week is used to refer to a long period of time. There's a certain number of weeks uh, until Jesus will return, I think, if I remember the passage correctly. Um, the point of Exodus 20.11 is a pattern, according to old earth creationists, a six and a one. It's not necessarily a literal week. In Genesis 1-2, to two, we notice the seventh day has no end. Okay, we already mentioned that. Um, the other big issue is harmonizing Genesis 1 and 2. So how do you guys like your homework? No problem. Yeah. So when were plants created? Give me the order. Plants and then what? So the order is the Yeah. 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 So in Genesis 2, we have man, and then we have plants and animals, and then we have woman. In Genesis 1, we have plants 
and then other, some animals, more animals, and then people at the end both created together. So, um, you know, there's different ways of reading this. Obviously, I put in here, um, you know, the liberal interpretation. This is because they represent two warring factions within the Jewish tradition of ancient Babylon. Both are fictions created to serve their religious perspectives. Okay, so we're not liberals. We don't agree with that. I'm not, I mean, you can be whatever you want, but I don't agree with that. Um, I believe these are both the inspired word of God, and they both are supposed to communicate truth to us. Um, so we're going to run into issues if we're trying to read these strictly literally. And uh, perhaps, okay, I meant to say this is something that caused people to, to believe these things. Um, people have read this and said, okay, maybe this isn't supposed to be strictly literal. If it was strictly literal, maybe there wouldn't be these apparent conflicts with, with the ordering. Um, also, what happened on day six? Okay. So if, if Genesis 2 uh, harmonizes with Genesis 1, what happened uh, on day 6? If this was also when Adam and Eve were created in the garden and all that stuff. Because remember, Adam and Eve were created on, the, on day 6. So everything that happens between the creation of Adam and Eve happened on the same day, if it's one literal day. So I'll just give you a list here, because we don't have much time. Um, if the two accounts are read... Concurrently, that means day six, yeah, everything took on the same place. So God created man. God caused the earth to bring forth a garden. Um, in, the, in verse 2, 9, it's interesting how God caused the earth to bring forth. Okay, so he's using intermediaries. So either he's planting a garden with seeds and causing it to grow, or else he's poof, doing it, you know, miraculously. But God put, God, put the, God put the man in the garden. Fourth, God tended, the man tended the garden. Fifth, God warned the man not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Sixth, God found that the man was lonely and decided to make a helper for him. Seven, out of the ground, God created all the land animals and brought them to the man. Eight, the man named all the animals. Nine, no helper was found for the man among the animals. Ten, God caused the man to fall asleep. Eleven, God did minor surgery, removed part of the man's side. Twelve, God fashioned a woman from part of the side. Thirteen, God presented the woman to the man. 14, the man was very happy and sang a song to her. 15, the two were naked and unashamed, which perhaps alludes to sexual union. So all this happened in a 24-hour period of time, if we are going to read Genesis 1 and 2 literally. So the young earth creationists will say, well, we can't put limits on what God is able to do. Sure, we can't. But it kind of creates a funny image in your mind if you try and think about, first of all, God creating you know, all these plants and animals kind of popping out of the earth like time-lapse photography, just boom, 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 boom. And then God creates Adam, and then he's like, wow, he's lonely already after 30 seconds, you know? And then, he, so he creates all these animals, pop, 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 pop. And he's like, name them all. And then Adam's like the flash, and he's like, you're a rabbit, boom, you're a, you're a fox. And he's zipping all around. And then after like, you know, an hour of this, naming all, you know, however many hundreds of thousands of animals, um, he says, God looks at him, he says, you know what, you're still lonely after three hours, I need to make you somebody. And so he puts him to sleep, and he takes a part of his rib, makes the woman, and boom! And, you know, you can't put limits on, on what God is able to do, but remember, it's Adam doing most of the work here. Um, and he, he seems to get lonely, you know, and, and so, like, how do you get lonely after 30 seconds of being created and seeing all the awesomeness of, of the garden? Um, so, again, there's young earth responses to this. It's just 
this is something that has pushed people biblically to say maybe it's a longer period of time. The pressure, the point of all this is to say the pressure is not only coming from outside, from science. There is warrant from within the text to say maybe there's a different way of reading it. Okay. Um, so the point of this, I was going to zip through this and then have good discussion afterwards. So um, hold your questions. And I want really good questions and hopefully we can have a good discussion after this. Um, let's move on to... Um, the old earth perspectives. So there's a lot that I'm going to just skip over here. Um, there's a lot of different ways of looking at the old earth perspective. Either there was a gap between Genesis 1 and 2. That's mostly, um, people don't really hold to that anymore, but it was an important part of um, Baptist thought, actually, in the uh, Schofield Study Bible in the late, late 1900s and early 20th century. Um, the creative day theory that perhaps the 24-hour days were separated by long periods of time. Um, the Presbyterian Church studied this issue and produced a document, which you can download if you want to study more. This is a really great document. It's called the Report of the Creation Study Committee. Uh, I thought it was a very balanced uh, document that kind of lays out the positions. And they came up with four basic options that are still current, still on the table today. Calen uh, the first is the calendar day interpretation, the young earth creationist perspective that we're all familiar with. Second is a day-age interpretation that each day represented a long age of time. The third is the framework interpretation that uh, God was creating, God was giving us a framework that he was working for six days and then he was resting. So it's like a framework. It's a literary framework. Uh, analogical days. Getting lost in all my notes here. What was analogical days again? Oh, so I had that backwards. So the analogical days are that the days are analogous to how God works for six days and then rests. And so we also work for six days and rest in a week. The framework perspective is a non-literal interpretation that this is the framework in which God created the heavens and the earth. Um, there's a new perspective out by John Walton that uh, Genesis 1 and 2 is uh, God setting up his cosmic temple. He's not actually creating anything. He's not actually doing anything. It's a purely theological, symbolic action, kind of like walking into your office and shuffling papers around saying, this is my office. Uh, this is what God did in Genesis 1 and 2. So there's perspectives out there. Um, and I'm going to skim over those because what's really, really important is the theology. And what, what's really important is, is talking about evolution and how this, this fits in and how it works. So um, we're going to start moving from the right over to the left on your chart. So the theistic, evolu theistic evolution or creation, creationistic evolution? Evolutionary creationism, sorry. I'm just going to call it theistic evolution though is that God created everything using evolution. So this resolves any tension between Christianity and Darwinism. It creates uh, quite a bit of tension with Christianity, with the Bible, specifically, and it depends on how you interpret it, but specifically, we have... Um, I want to get these in order here and not change them here. Old Earth Creationism... Okay, so how, how does evolution display God's glory? Um, and how, do, how can Adam, most of them center around Adam, 
A, be the federal head of the human race. B, be truly made in the image of God. C, have, maybe I should write these so that I'm going at the same pace as you are, because these are, these are the really key issues. These are why, as much as I don't appreciate Ken Hovind calling people heretics, I do understand when you don't have good answers to these questions, these can really become problematic. Um, so, the glory of God, uh, and then Adam. So, federal head. Do you guys know what I mean by federal head? Probably not. That's kind of a, a crazy theological term. So, Adam represents us. Remember, um, did you guys study uh, Romans uh, 5 and 8? So, through death, through sin, death entered into the human race. And Jesus is the second Adam. Um, so, if, if Adam was just one more hominid along a long line of evolutionary process, and maybe he was just one of a herd of, or troop or whatever of, of um, I want to call them Neanderthals, but that, I think there's a better name for it, uh, Homo sapiens sapiens or something like that. Um, how could he represent us? He's just one among many. Um, how could he be responsible? That, that's the federal head issue. Um, and how can death come before the fall? So that's, this is a really, really big issue, is the death and suffering before the fall. Um, so an evolution, uh, theistic evolutionist would respond to the glory issue to say, if we can glorify God for creating the universe in six days, how much more amazing that he created a machine that <laughs> evolves, and he created evolving machines that, that can self-replicate and can you know, populate the earth. Um, as far as the federal head, and the, okay, so uh, C.S. Lewis mentions briefly in um, Mere Christianity, who knows how long God was working with this vessel before he, found, before he perfected, you know, the vessel that was to receive, you know, God's imbuing of the Holy Spirit. So they can see, you know, all these, this evolutionary process is, is uh, all subsumed under the, in Genesis 2, you know, God stooped down and, and created from the dust of the earth the man. And then he breathed into him the Holy Spirit of life. So they still see man being breathed into divinely. You know, we have, there, there's something very different about humans versus animals, and that's because we're made in the image of God. And so they would still say we're made in the image of God, even if we evolved, even if the container, so to speak, our, our bodies evolved. Federal head, I think they would say that the humanity bottlenecked at a certain point when, you know, this vessel became the human race. Um, and death and suffering before the fall is an issue that still kind of remains. Um, so we'll move on to the next perspective here. Interestingly enough, uh, through genetic studies, they, are, they have found mitochondrial Adam and mitochondrial Eve, and they have seen that our genetics trace back to one bottleneck for female and one bottleneck for male. Now, problematically, these are separated by hundreds of thousands of years, but... It's a very young study, and it's very possible that these two could actually line up. And also, in um, uh, Hugh Ross points out that actually the bottlenecks should be separate, because Eve was the the was the bottleneck for creation, but Noah was the bottleneck for men, 
because the people that got on the ark were related male. And there were four women, unless they married their sisters, unlikely. There were four women that were not bottlenecked. And so the bottleneck for male should be later than the bottleneck for female on a strict biblical, separated by you know, at least a thousand years. In his perspective, it's much more than that. Okay, so let's move on to um, the next theistic evolution perspective, theistic evolution number one. Um, Adam was a special creation. Adam and Eve were specially created. So God did not, they're not sanctified apes, so to speak. God specifically stooped down, used dust of the earth, whatever. And he, the whole thing is different. The whole thing, it's based on, on the patterns that he developed through evolution, but the whole thing is original and different. So this, it seems to make the image of God a little bit, um, it protects it maybe a little bit to say, because... As much as we can say God created the vessel and everything like that, it, it just, it's a little bit hard to draw the line between animal and human if we all came from the same ancestry. And even evolution, I mean, theistic evolutionists will do that. We'll just say that we're made in the image of God even though our vessel is made, you know, came from slime and, and monkeys and whatever. But if you, if you say that we're especially made in the image of God, it just kind of protects that a little bit because the made in the image of God is so important, isn't it? I mean, that is... That is, you know, our human dignity. That is all of our social justice issues. That is, if we, if we lose that, we're losing a lot. Um, and it makes it easier to see how Adam is the federal head for the, the whole human race because he was the first Adam. We're a different species. And the first one makes the decisions for everybody else in the same way that uh, Trump makes the decisions for, for some people in this room, not for me. <laughs> But uh, the, the federal head issue works a little bit better if, um, if Adam was specially created. We're still left with death and suffering before the fall, mm-hmm. which is a pretty significant issue. Um, so then we get into um, Hugh Ross, Reasons to Believe, um, who has been somewhat of a revelation to me because I felt like... I have a cartoon here for it. Yes. <laughs> I can find it. Uh, this is how I felt for a long time, for about eight years, literally. I was between young earth creationists, I have to believe, in 6,000 years, which I find very difficult to believe, or old earth creationism, I, I have to believe in evolution, which I find very difficult to believe. And up till a week and a half ago, I, I created about 18 pages of point form notes. I was all ready, and I was just like, oh, like, how can I present people with these options? Like, I feel so stuck, and I don't want to like present this, and then you feel really stuck. Um, and then... I read Hugh Ross, and I saw, sorry about that, just close your eyes. <laughs> no, I don't have that slide. Anyways, th- there's a third way. Um, God specially created all biological life, therefore evolution is not on the table. But he does believe in an old earth. And so this is the third way, kind of old earth creationism. So what does this resolve? Well, strictly speaking, it doesn't resolve a whole lot. Um, you know, except perhaps that it shows the glory of God, perhaps a bit more, although theistic evolutionists would still say that evolution displays the glory of God. But if God is specifically creating, you know, without evolution, it just kind of seems to, to highlight that a bit more. Federal head, again, has, has already been resolved. Death and suffering before the fall doesn't really change because we still have animals on planet Earth dying, killing one another, and everything like this. But what is different is that Hugh Ross has a very, I think, good explanation of um, this question. So first of all, we need to divide between 
Uh, natural evil and moral evil. So you guys remember natural evil, moral evil? So natural evil, what is that? Earthquakes, uh, volcanoes, also diseases, um, predation, things like that. Moral evil, what is that? Yeah, pe- people doing bad things that, that should know better. So murder, rape, wars, genocides, things like that. Uh, and we said in the, um, in the course on the problem of pain that both of these come from human sin, which is the typical Christian understanding of this. So this is why when we start switching the order of things, we have real issues. So young earth creationists, original sin comes first, then natural evil and moral evil at the same time. They should be the same time even though they're separated. Um, at the bottom, natural evil and moral evil come before original sin. So depending on what you're talking about with, with humans, if, if there's you know, hominids that aren't Adam, that haven't been chosen, whatever. Um, old earth creationism says natural evil came before original sin. There was earthquakes, there were famine, there was predation, but moral evil comes after. And death by sin comes after. So who, man, I need my Bible. If anybody sees a Bible somewhere around, I lost my Bible a few weeks ago and I'm just lost. Okay, so, so do you guys have your homework from last week? Okay, so where, where does um, death come from? Death through sin. Uh, where, yeah. So death through Adam comes from sin in Romans 5.12. So here Ross would say that the through sin modifies uh, death. Death through sin comes through Adam. But that's not modifying animal death because animals don't die through sin. They just die. They don't have a soul like we do and they're not, the death is different. Um, also in Romans 8, this was what really, again, what I said at the beginning about when we have better, when we do a good job of reforming, we have better science and better theology. Um, this helped me with a passage that I had always been curious about. Romans 8 talks about moral or the natural evil. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. So there's entropy in the world, there is natural disasters, there's diseases, there's you know, animals being eaten alive by other animals. Not only so, but we ourselves, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly await for our adoption of sonship, the redemption Oh, I'm sorry, I should have backed up. Okay, I consider that verse 18, 818 of Romans. I consider that our present sufferings are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed to us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration. Okay, so now this is, this is natural evil. The creation was subjected to frustration. Who subjected it? Eight three of what? This is the notes. Romans eight three. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be an offering for our sin, and so He condemned sin in the flesh. How do you see moral evil there, or natural evil? I. 
natural disasters. I think this is moral evil that's being condemned in the flesh by, by Jesus' sacrifice. So what I would expect this passage to say, and what I have always read this passage to say, is the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but because of the sin of Adam who subjected it. That's not actually what it says. It says, for creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the, by the will of the one who subjected it. Hmm. This is why you always preach with your own Bible. Um, in my Bible, it says, but because of him who subjected it. So it's a pronoun. We don't know who it is. But it's, in my Bible, it's capitalized because the translators figured this is probably referring to God. So it's, it's just unclear who subjects it. It's a pronoun. It was subjected by him who subjected it. That's like saying the person that did it, did it. Um, but it's vague. And so the point that he Ross would, would say is that God subjected the earth to futility with you know, these natural cycles of life and death and disease and predation to keep you know, the, the populations in check of various animals and things like that. Um, what is it called? You know... Um, Ecosystems. He put ecosystems in place for life. Um, and this, this was part of the original creation. And then man comes on the scene, and God's intention with man, God creates man with a body that can die, with a body that's part of the natural order, if, um, where he, he could potentially get a cold or fall off a cliff or, or something like that. But he puts him in a garden, and he gives him the tree of life. And so the garden and the tree of life, which had some sort of healing properties, were able to sustain his life eternally. So Adam himself was not, you know, angelic or something like that. He was part of the terrestrial creation. But because of the garden and the tree of life, he should have lived forever. Then he sins and he gets kicked out of the garden. And now, because of his sin, for, for the sake of humanity... Only for them, it's as though natural evil comes after the fall. Because if it wasn't for, if it wasn't for his sin, he would, he, we would not experience natural evil in the same way. We would live forever. We would be shielded from earthquakes and hurricanes and things like that because we're in the garden and because we're eating the tree of life. But because they got kicked out of the garden, now they experience natural evil as well as moral evil. Okay, so when I heard that, it totally messed me up. Because <laughs> that's not how I'm used to thinking of things. And I can see that on your faces, you're kind of like, whoa, that changes a lot of things. Um, and I still haven't completely worked through all the things because it's kind of moving a big Jenga piece in my theology. And I'm not quite sure what's going to tip over here. Um, but I think, I think it works. Um, so, you know, um, I haven't completely decided where I stand on this, which is probably a good place to be teaching it because I'm like, here's the different options. Um, I appreciate how completely you have presented the pros and cons of all the options. Good. I, I really appreciate the, the thoroughness with which uh-huh. everything is being presented as this says this, but then they say this. And, I mean, I really do appreciate that. So I think we're, we're about 10 minutes over, but we, we can open it to questions. What do you guys... Can you put that one slide up there? I'm this one here? Yeah, yeah. Uh, because that's where uh, <coughs> in this DVD, we'll see, talks about it. Yeah. And he comes back saying, we cannot, uh, just a second. He's saying, because in Genesis 1, verse 31, because it says at the end that 
God saw everything he did yes. and he declared this is very good. Yes, then I should have mentioned that. Thank you. cannot have happened before. Yeah. So I have that in your notes. Exactly. That's the pushback of, I mean, and none of these positions works completely. They all have mm-hmm. issues. And this is the big theological pushback is um, how can it be very good if you have cancer, if you have, you know, lions jumping on zebras and eating them? Mm-hmm. Um, but you could then turn around and say because God sees the big picture, right? He sees the end. He sees that, he sees that until we, that, that we yeah. put happily in the garden. So 97 in, on your chart, him, 97. You know, and are incapable of doing the whole, I mean, in other words, theoretically, this entire universe is in place just for us to experience the redemption of Jesus, right? Yeah. And, and our ability to come as the bride. And, and we can't clothe ourselves and perfect ourselves and make ourselves into the bride of Christ if we haven't got options and choices. And, and so, so that the whole of creation was very good because Jesus was at the end of it. Because God, and and part of the very good was God knew what the purpose of it was. And he knew humanity was going to fall. And he knew this was the sort of world that they would need to, you know, even Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. You know, it's through suffering that we learn obedience. And this is the sort of world he needed. Um, The other response is, and I know this is kind of an emotional kind of a, I've mentioned a few times now, people just have, they just find a view repulsive emotionally. And I know some people will just look at this and say, that's, that's, I can't believe that because it's emotionally repugnant. But if you look at the ecosystems around the world, in a sense, they are beautiful. Mm-hmm. It is beautiful how God hangs everything in balance and, and the herbivores are, are held in check by the, the carnivores and everything like that. Um, very good isn't the same as perfect, Hugh Ross says that. I, I don't know. But uh, I, I don't know because I don't see it in the text. I don't see God said, it's very good, but not quite perfect. <laughs> you know, I'm not sure that there would have been a different word he could have used other than very good. I think very good is the best you know, the best. The, in Hebrew, but I haven't studied it thoroughly either. Um, let me just go through these and then I'll answer that. Uh, in recent, uh, uh, so William Lane Craig, I believe, leans towards theistic evolution. So he's got the same issue with, with animals dying before, um, before the fall. And he has divided animal suffering into three orders of suffering. This isn't original with him, but he applies it to this issue. So um, amoebas and insects and things like that, if you poke them, they'll, they'll move away from negative stimuli to, for self-preservation. But you shouldn't think of this amoeba saying, ouch. You know, it's, just, it's just a moving away from stimuli. Um, so when, when a praying mantis grabs a grasshopper and starts eating him alive, He's not saying, ah, don't eat me. Um, you know, he's trying to get away, but he's not feeling pain in the same sense that we are. Animals, higher animals, uh, feel pain. You know, if you poke a cow, he'll moo. But he doesn't know that he's feeling pain in the same way that we do. We have a self-consciousness of ourselves. And we, even if, if you say, I'm going to poke you, you know, you can already feel that, you know. And, and it, that's, yeah, so, and we can, when we're in pain, we can conceptualize of ourselves in the pain and think about how much this pain is hurting, which is why, um, you know, if, 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 you're, if you're holding a child and you slip and they get hurt and they're offended, you know, the, the pain only lasted a second, but their, their emotional reliving of that pain lasts a long time because they're like, you hurt me, it hurts so bad. 
you know, so, so there's these three orders of pain, and perhaps God shielded animals from having higher orders of pain because he knew they were going to be suffering for a long, well, suffering, so to speak, for a long period of time. Um, but he didn't create deer out in the woods thinking, I'm going to get eaten, I'm going to get eaten. You know, they're just a little bit like, like you know, moist, moist robots, so to speak. They're, they're running around, they're eating their stuff, but they're not, you know, thinking about themselves, you know, in danger. Um, perhaps God had morally sufficient reasons for this. Um, yeah, and even though creation was subjected to futility, in a sense, it was because of man's sin, because God knew they were going to sin, so he created a world in which that would suit their sin. So even though the, the cause came after the effect, it's still kind of our fault. Uh, so that's 97 to 102. But again, it is, that, it is definitely a weak point of this position, yeah? It's a 102 that I'm yeah. Because I don't read that in, if you read and explained Romans 8, 18, it doesn't exactly mesh with 102. And so in this way, the cause of natural evil is still human sin, mm-hmm. even though one precedes the other. But you, you look at your reference in 8, 18, and said the cause of natural sin is still human sin. Uh, sorry, uh, um, creation was subjected to frustration by him, have a so that has to be by God. Yeah. Yeah, God one's created... By God, one's here by still humans. Still talking about natural okay. evil. Yeah, so that might be a confusing point to add to this. I'm still trying to cling to my old way of seeing it, <laughs> that in some sense we're still responsible for natural evil. That, but maybe it would be better just to say God did it, you know, and leave it at that. Um, Creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So we all agree that heaven will operate under new physics. There will not be entropy, there will not be decay, there will not be suffering. Um, And so according to this view, the original creation had futility built into it, but it was always... It was always an intermediary step towards the ultimate. Heaven was not a plan B. It was always in the works that this is how God is going to, you know, create this kind of training ground or, or test, I don't know what, testing ground or something to create, you know, free, people that can free will, through free will, choose him, that can enter into, you know, paradise without messing it up uh, with their free will. Because the cross is not plan B, also. You know, this idea yeah. that... That, that plan A, plan B thing is another thing that really kind of turned lights on for me that like, because it's always been an issue for me because when I'm trying to explain, I say, well, you know, God created good then there was free will, then we fell, then God saved us. And it's kind of like, it kind of is a plan B, you know? So if God from the beginning planned, he knew that we would fall and he, he created the world in the right way. So it was always plan A that seems to iron out some wrinkles for me personally. But again, I, 
I mean, I should really pre be presenting on this about three months once I've worked at all the kinks. Um, but, you know, all these positions have pros and cons, and that's one of the cons. Got time for maybe one or two more comments. I wonder if anybody's commented online. They never do. I ask them so late. I like your dear impression. Your dear <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Thank you for it. Sound too low, shoot. This is sound very is helpful. Now. And so ah, that shoot. person who is proposing that theory, what's his name? The Rock? You want your homework, you better take it before I mix it up with the news. So somebody asked, is the United Church liberal? Um, you would say yes. Um, I, I would tend to agree. But I don't want to say that nobody in the United Church is not liberal. Um, the modernist fundamentalist debate came over the ocean uh, in the, right after the World War I. In between World War I and II, there were huge debates, in, especially in the States, over modernity and liberalism. And there was um, most of the major universities, especially Princeton Seminary, there was a huge theological battle fought over that, and it was lost to liberalism. And the United Church and, and the Anglican Church and the, you know, most of the quote-unquote quote mainline denominations, what used to be the mainline denominations, became liberal in their thinking, absorbing more and more of these concepts. Once you start, it kind of becomes something that takes over. I kind of see it working like a disease, which is maybe a very pejorative way of seeing it, but it just kind of functions that way. Um, and so, yes, I, I would tend to see uh, the United Church as, um, as liberal. Uh, and uh, I want to mention, because it came up in a discussion afterwards, uh, what is the emergent church? Some people asked about that because I mentioned it right at the beginning somewhere, and it was in the discussion. So um, maybe I shouldn't get into this too much, but a lot of the younger generation are feeling kind of trapped in baby boomer churches that have been under the same leadership for a long time and that are focused on questions, you know, that are kind of obsolete nowadays. And so they feel like they need to get out of church and there's, or, or see church in a different way. And there's kind of four options. There's loud church, uh, there's home church, liberal church, or the missional church uh, that we could talk about in depth, probably each one of them. Um, you know, so reinterpreting a, a new way to do church, and we could call this the emergent church broad umbrella. One of the options in here is definitely liberalism. These same old ideas from Germany, recycled and repackaged in a new way. And, uh, you know, Brian McLaren and Rob Bell are two names that were really popular 10 years ago. I'm not sure who the new people are. Uh, Phyllis Tickle, I believe. Um, great name. <laughs> not to denigrate anybody by their name. But these, these ideas are out there. And... Um, we need to know what liberalism is so that we can fight it and so that we don't, you know, shoot down our brother with, through friendly fire, so to speak. Um, there is such a thing as liberalism, but everybody that doesn't agree with you is not a liberal, obviously. So I wonder if there's any, any other questions from, I think, I think that was it from there. What's the big vote? Yeah. All right, were there, were there any other questions? Was it just that clear? Yeah, I know. Yeah.
especially what I hit you with at the end of class, that yeah. is just really a different way of looking at things. So I, I will let you think and meditate. Um, let's, let's close our time in prayer. Lord, I thank you that you are good and that your mercies are new every morning. And I thank you, Lord, that um, we are made in your image. And everywhere around us we see your order and the heavens are telling the works of your hands. And um, everywhere we see, we see how awesome you are and how much you love us. Um, we feel unworthy of that, Lord, as we consider the heavens the work of your hands. Who is man that you take thought of him? The son of man that you are mindful of him. You have established praise from the mouths of, of children and, and even babies. Uh, you've crowned us with grandeur and strength, and you've made us a little lower than the angels and made us in charge of everything. It's crazy. Um, but we thank you for that, and we thank you for how um, your goodness is displayed to us and through us. And I just pray that we can, we can continue to understand and absorb this material and, and other material and and become powerful in your kingdom. Um, be able to tear down strongholds and every lofty thing brought up against the knowledge of God. And to um, participate with power and vigor in your mission of reconciling people to God. And um, I just thank you for, for all of this and especially for your word which is unchanging. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, I guess you're dismissed.